This episode of Full Stack Radio is brought to you by Laracasts. Laracast is the de facto community and educational resource for PHP developers of all skill levels. Whether you're new to Laravel or you're hoping to level up your dev team, Laracast was constructed entirely and exclusively for you. It's a lot like Netflix for your career. I think there's over 500 videos on there right now covering all sorts of topics from Laravel itself to different backend tools, front end frameworks like Vue.js and React, design patterns, how to get better at Git. There's something on there for everybody. So check it out if you have a chance at Laracasts.com. And thanks again to Laracast for sponsoring Full Stack radio enjoy the show hey everyone welcome to another episode of the full stack radio podcast where i talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration i'm here again with the only ever recurring full stack radio guest matt machuga how's it going dude good i feel honored (laughs) awesome so what's new man what's going on um just been doing the whole work thing i have a new kid so uh not been sleeping much yeah, that's uh, awesome. Congratulations. So, thank you. So that's been fun and um, trying to get into learning a few other languages for fun. Awesome, man. I noticed that you're doing a, a user group presentation coming up on Elm, which is, I guess, like some front end functional thing that I've never heard of. Uh, <laughs> so what's that all about? Um, Elm is effectively like a front endy Haskell like language. Yeah, um, it's from the ML family. It'll compile the Elm code into JavaScript like any other one would, except that it has type inference and it runs through that in the, the parsing phase. So you kind of get like a validation that your program is not going to throw a runtime error. Sure. So like I phrased it like a dumbass, but you know, the idea is that if you write your code and it compiles, it's not going to throw a runtime error um, at runtime, but you could still have like some logic bugs in place. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but there's no mutability in the language. It's pure, just like Haskell is. Um, so far, it's been pretty fun, but like, advanced advanced topics are still kind of hard for me. Like there's signals where that's effectively how you communicate that something has changed and you need to like, like look up what it is or it needs to tell the program what it is. Because um, along with being functional, it's also functional reactive. Oh, and that's okay. a whole new thing for me. So I'm sure. like all sorts of loss. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's a learning step. It's fun. All right, on. What have you been using that for? Anything um, real or just kind of like playing with it to learn? Just playing with it to learn. Like we've been discussing, uh, right now we use CoffeeScript a lot at work and we're trying to phase out CoffeeScript and we're just, you know, we're teetering on what we want to use next. Um, right now, ECMAScript 2015 is looking like the the promising one. Just kind of like throw Babel in there and use it. And now that Node 4 is released, most of those features are in Node as well. But um you know, TypeScript's a good option that compiles the ES5 as well. And it has ES6 features and then Elm would be cool, but I think it's just going to be too much overhead to teach a whole bunch of engineers how to use Elm and then jump right in. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Cool. I was looking at the website a little bit, just kind of poking around to see what it's kind of all about. And I saw some mention of like building games and stuff with it. Mm -hmm. Is that pretty common? It seems it looks like it like Elm doesn't have a huge user base right now. Yeah. But it seems like games are really straightforward. Um, If you're on the page and you want to check out something, I think the Mario demo has the the live debugger hooked into it. Um, If it doesn't, there's a presentation that shows it, but you can effectively freeze the game at any point in time and go backwards and forwards in time from that place and set watchers. Okay. So since everything's happening immutably, you can pretty much just go back and oh, forth. Oh, it's like and, infinite kind of history, I guess. Yeah. That can like replay all the events that like created the current state and stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's pretty neat. And you can embed it like directly into the HTML or you can tell the, the what's it called, reactor itself. You can tell it to run the web page for you and then you can just hook in watchers. So 
it's a neat little concept. I would love to have that in other languages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's sweet. Yeah, I've been playing with a little bit of functional programming stuff. Like, I found myself um, in my, like, regular kind of more OO, day-to-day web app sort of stuff, bringing in some, like, functional concepts and learning about them kind of by accident, not really realizing that they were functional concepts. Like, I've really, really been getting into those, like, compositional chains that you can do with collections mm-hmm. and stuff and those sort of, like, transformations. And that way of thinking has, I think, really... uh improved my code and like opened up my eyes to like creative solutions for different things and i know that's only like you know the tip of the iceberg as far as all the functional programming concepts so i've been kind of diving into elixir a little bit and trying to learn more about that because i'm hoping to find more cool things like that that i can bring back and apply uh to what i do day to day have you ever looked at like elixir before yeah a whole bunch of the coworkers um i think through math are really into elixir I think there's two that focus on it a lot. Um, we have some other people who do like Haskell and things like that. But um, because Elixir is pretty close to Ruby, that seems to be a common uh, trend in the Ruby world to just shift over to Elixir. Yeah. Um, I really like what I've seen. One of our engineers, uh, CG, he rewrote our chat application in Elixir just to kind of see how everything flowed together. And I guess that was like ridiculously easy because <laughs> the actor pattern, the way yeah, things yeah, work. Yeah didn't hit the same bottlenecks that we hit in node. So that was kind of a cool co- uh, proof of concept there. Um, I haven't used it myself yet, but that's kind of, it's on my list. I just have a few other things I got to get to first. Yeah, so, for sure. Um, what do you think of Elixir? I mean, I haven't like done too much with it. I'm still kind of like learning what they're all is and kind of trying to wrap my head around the way you do stuff in a functional programming language. The thing that I'm like finding really cool so far, like, again, I've just, just been getting into it i literally bought like the pragmatic programming uh elixir book dave thomas's book like two days ago and i've just been kind of working with it through it in the evenings kind of getting comfortable with it but uh the whole pattern matching stuff is like a totally new concept that i've never seen in an object-oriented language before that i think is really cool is that like a standard functional programming thing like does elm have that in haskell and stuff as well uh does elm have it elm yeah, Elm has it, but it's it's a little bit different. I don't think it works off functionality. It works more of um, you would set what's effectively an enumerable as a type, and then it can just pick out what type you're sending into it. Um, so it's not like exactly the same thing. Uh, Haskell has pattern matching, and a few other functional languages have it. Closure has it in the form of a what do they call it? A multi method. Okay. So then it can play off functionality and the function type and stuff like that. But yeah, that's a brilliant concept. It's so cool. Like, it's so cool to look at like a solution to like a Fibonacci generator or something that's using pattern matching where you can define a version of the function that like, this is the version to call when N is one. This is the version to call when N is zero. Like the parameters don't have to be variables, right? It just has to be able to like match the input to the set of parameters defined for that version of the function that'll invoke that version. And you use like the other versions of the function that do pattern match on different variables to like recursively call the ones that pattern match on like the constant variables. And it's really a cool approach to doing stuff that I definitely, it's definitely something I'd never seen before or thought about even like in the sort of code that I get to write day to day. Right. So it's cool to f- discover concepts like that, that are standard fare in different like programming idioms that never occurred to you exist you know what i mean so that's kind of what i'm excited about diving into the functional programming rabbit hole personally for sure yeah i think i saw that concept for the first time um like two years ago or something when avdi grim put out the ruby tapas episode okay and uh 
apparently somebody quit his his uh, subscription service over that episode. He's like, this isn't Ruby and like gave up on it. Oh, so what did he do? He put out like an Elixir episode or something? Yeah, it was just one episode saying like, hey, take a look at this uh, programming language that a fellow Rubyist made. And he walked through uh, writing the game of life with all pattern matching versus all the other setup processes. Okay. I was like, I've never seen that concept before in my life. This is like <laughs> fascinating, you know? Yeah. He walked through and just showed how simple it could be. And it was like different function types or functionarities being uh, displayed. And I wanted that functionality, you know, yeah. but I didn't really trust Elixir as a new language at that time that it would stick around. So I'm pretty pleased that it's still here. Yeah. I didn't realize how new it was until recently. Like, I guess it first came out in any incarnation at all in like 2011, right? Something wow. like that. I didn't even think it was that old. Oh, really? I thought it was like 2013 it came out. Oh, wow. I could be very wrong. Yeah. The guy who wrote it, uh, Jose Valim, right? Uh, Jose Valim. Jose yeah. Valim. He's a, was a big Rails core guy and stuff too, right? Or yeah, Ruby he core. works for. Uh, was he on the core? Well, I know he works for He's a big name Tech. in that community. Yeah, he writes. Um, he works for the company that does like Devise and the the different gems like that. Uh, Simple form. So he he's done a lot in the community for sure. Cool. Is there any stuff that uh, you know, kind of continuing on this idea of functional programming idioms that are like brand new or like really cool that you've never seen before as someone who writes object oriented code? Is there any stuff that really gets you excited in the functional world that I should look into and see what I can learn from it. Functional world. Not sure about concepts. Exactly. Some different languages have different features that I wish we could have in things like Ruby and PHP. Um, one thing that closure has, which kind of works as a type system is the concept of a precondition and a post condition. So you can say that before, uh, an argument makes it to this function, it should look like this. And when it leaves, it should look like this. Um, so you would usually use that in place of like a unit test and you just kind of turn it on in the testing phase. The precondition stuff makes sense, but what, how do you define like the post condition? Like, what does that actually mean? So think of it as like the return type from your function. Yeah. What should, what should come out of your function? What should it look like? That's effectively all the post condition checks. So it's, it's, it's type. Well, does closure have a type system? Close. Yeah. The language itself doesn't. It does and it doesn't. It's not an explicit type system. It's kind of like Ruby's where there are types, but it's not type-based. Um, and then all the Java libraries, those types get used by the system. Um, there is a dialect of closure called typed closure. Um, I'm not even sure it's fair to call it a dialect because it's a library, but it'll turn on a full type system inside of closure. Yeah, that's the thing with a lot of these, like, uh, closure's a lisp, right? Yeah. It seems like all those kind of languages really let you do insane stuff like at the runtime level. You can like write code that basically turns it into a different language almost. And it sounds like kind of that's what that's doing. Yeah, list, list languages are pretty much a blast. Yeah. Like um, I switched over to Emacs, I think a year or two ago now, but I still use all my Vim bindings and the scripting language is so much better. Um, like default Elisp isn't that great, but you can turn on like common list functions and get modern stuff. Um, and then there's a project to use the GNU version, which is called Guile. Um, that's actually like a scheme, and they're trying to make that the default Emacs language. So if that happens, things could get better, but who knows? Cool, man. So kind of shifting gears completely, it's another topic that I thought would be kind of cool to talk about would be just like little tips and tricks that you kind of keep in the back of your mind in your day-to-day -day when you're writing like pretty standard like rails code or like you know any other mvc framework like laravel or something things that you keep in your mind or that you try to apply to what you're doing that you think lead to better code bases uh, and nothing that has to be crazy i can start like an example of something that um 
like a little tip or trick that I kind of stumbled across that I think has been keeping my code bases cleaner is, you know, um, a lot of time you'll have like a nested resource, say, right? If you Mm -hmm. have a URL that might be like um, posts slash five slash comments, right? And that'll get the comments for post ID five. And for the longest time, I was always trying to figure, I was always struggling with like, where do the controller actions go for this route? Like, do they go in the comments controller or do they go in the posts controller? And sometimes I put it in one, sometimes I put it in the other or whatever. And then one day it dawned on me that I could make like a new controller and call it like the posts <laughs> comments controller that like exists solely to return comments related to a specific post rather than like uh, comments that are higher level, right? So instead of like mm-hmm. your all comments endpoint or getting a specific comment. And I thought it was really cool because it lets you st- still just use like your standard um like your generated action names in your controller mm-hmm. and i i find like trying to force myself to try really hard to keep everything that i'm doing inside that convention at least try you know what i mean and see if if there's a way that i can make it work has led me to like uncover cool little tips and tricks like that that have kept my code bases a little cleaner than they were before instead of just kind of you know, letting it loose and being like, oh, I'll just add this here and just like break the convention and call it this or whatever. So just putting in that little piece of extra effort and trying to think of a creative way to be able to follow some convention uh, has led to some cool discoveries like that. Do you have any little things like that that uh, you kind of try to apply that you think people might not know about? Uh, I'm going to think through some tips and tricks while I rant on a a topic I just uh, stumbled upon the other day. Sure. So along with Think Through Math, I do um, own things through my own consultancy um, artists. And one of the projects I had, I had the, the contact of the company say, hey, in the admin panel, when I save this related item, like maybe it was files at the time or images or something, it would not save on a new item. So like they would click uh, into the system, they would add the new, let's say it's, um, let's say it's a blog post, for instance, the blog post pops up, then they try to save the next, uh, like the related fi- picture to it. Yep. And it would error out. It would just throw a 500. So I had to go in and see what it was. The object that was getting sent back down from the server is what on the front end I trusted as the canonical version. Like this is what the object should look like. Um, and I guess the big point here is that the front end is an SPA and the back end is just like an API. Yeah. So one thing I forgot about PHP is that we don't store the schema for a database inside of the object layer in like active record. Mm-hmm. So Eloquent doesn't know what my database tables look like, despite the fact that I've told it things like I want the the typecasting to turn images into a hash or images into an array. So the version that came back down didn't have my related items, so the rest of the system wouldn't account for it. So I guess the, the takeaway here is that I wish Eloquent had some sort of schema caching to where if you booted up and it didn't detect the schema file there, it would scan your database when it like maybe did a select or something yeah says okay these are all the fields that came back i can now cache those and i can make all the objects match this representation um in rails if you do a dot new all of your fields are there right for you because active record knows about your schema ahead of time yeah so in order to get around that in php or at least i should stop saying php in order to get around that in laravel you would want to fetch your your new record from the database despite the fact that you have it already and then send that version back down. So it's a bit roundabout, but that's what saved me pretty much. Oh, neat. Yeah. I guess like sort of related to that topic, something that I've been finding also has helped me keep things like a little better organized and uh, I'm finding has been a good approach has been to try and 
encapsulate like all database access uh, when I'm using like an active record ORM, like Eloquent, encapsulate mm-hmm. all the database access inside the Eloquent models or the yes. active record models. So like I'm never calling save in a controller, for example, or I'm never uh, adding something explicitly to a relationship or something in a controller. I'm always trying to figure out like what is like a more domain specific term for what it is I'm trying to do and how can I bake like saving this into the actual action that I'm putting on the model. So like an example would be I was building out like a Twitter clone for a workshop that I ran a little while ago and um, you have you know, users who can follow other users, right? So you want to mm-hmm. be able to add someone to someone's uh, follower list, for example, right? Or to someone's following list. So if you're a user and you want to follow someone else, you could say like user following and then save and pass in the other user. And you could do that right in the controller. Or you could think like, well, what is it that I'm actually trying to do? And you could create a method on the user like follow that accepts another user, pulls it in, knows about like, well, what do I have to do with the database to make it so that this person is considered to be following this person and do that there. And I've been finding like being really religiously strict about making sure I'm not doing any database related stuff outside of my eloquent models has forced me to like identify important domain concepts and give things names and stuff like that. And it almost ends up with code that looks like you were not using a database at all. You know what I mean? Uh, I think that's kind of the difference between using like a data mapper ORM and uh, an active record ORM. Like people will say like, well, I'm mixing like my database concerns with my business logic and now that's scattered everywhere. Well, if you go like fully the opposite direction and just like stuff every database thing you possibly can into like the active record models, now there's no database stuff anywhere else in your system. And when things are talking to each other, it just looks like they're talking to each other in memory and you don't even have to like think about it. So that's been like a, a cool takeaway for me. Have you have you ever thought about that like approach to things? Yeah, we do a lot of things uh, inside the models. And then we also have a good collection of services that know how to operate on, I guess, uh, collaborative models. So certain things that need to talk to each other but shouldn't know about the inner workings of each other, we'll like split that out into a service. So um, like if it needs to communicate to a, a sidekick job, for instance, we'll split that out. Um, like sometimes we have to, sp- uh, I don't know how much I can say about certain things, but sometimes we have to do some work that needs to be ran in the background and then eventually that can get uh, updated afterwards. So we handle things in that nature. Um, we have like really big objects in a few spots in the system, like yeah. the canonical God object. We totally have a few of those. Yeah. Um, so in those areas, I wish we didn't throw as much into the model. Um, but those were more of like shoehorn fits. Like I've seen your code. I know how you like know when to separate things. So I totally get what you're saying, but just to like kind of clarify that if you have like an eloquent model and you have like two or three working together, and they all seem to know about each other's private APIs or the private properties, I usually feel like that should be brought out into its own object that knows about that domain concept, assuming it is part of your domain. If it's just like silly work, you can do whatever with it. But we have things that like move a user to this school or something like that. And that is a huge chunk of work that we bring out somewhere else. So that usually helps us. Also form objects. I love form Form objects. objects are great. I, for all the times I've written, uh, accepts nested attributes as, which we don't have an equivalent in, in Laravel, but just, it's better that we don't. Yeah, I kind um, of agree. <laughs> Maybe we can take a step back and kind of explain what a form object is and when you would use a form object. Cause it is a, a really cool pattern. Do you want to do it? Your voice is more soothing than mine. We can handle it either way. All right. All right. So imagine that you have like a, a form, uh, on your site that 
is a little bit more complicated than like representing exactly one model and that one model's fields. Um, you could do something kind of nasty where you have this form that submits a bunch of stuff to the controller. The controller gets all these fields from the request and kind of pieces things together and kind of figures out, well, these ones map to this object. And, you know, when this person like put in this string here, really that means I have to create this related object that has to get saved and it gets really messy. Um, so what you can do, and I find myself doing this with like a lot of different things kind of closer to the view layer is create like an object that is like the backend representation of that form and kind of pretend that the form itself is almost like a model in your system. And you can pass the input into the form and construct the form of that input. And then you can basically like call save on that form or maybe you have another domain specific word that makes more sense for what you're doing. But then that form itself is responsible for knowing like what parts of the input map to what different objects. And then your controller actions can still stay nice and clean as if they were just working with like a, one model so it's pretty cool did i miss anything there or anything else that you want to add to that um i guess the other thing i want to point out about is that with a form object you you can kind of reuse it in other places too so you have it representing your your input form from the html but if you make it a certain way you can use that in other places in your system where you want to encapsulate that logic you say like if i like from a, a, a background job again if i send this information from a job because i got it um like a bulk invite or something. I want to create this user. I can still use all that, rewrap all that validation. I have all of it. And then it can either throw an exception or succeed. And that's just like one of those things I love that you can just kind of throw it in the form, throw it in the sidekick worker, throw it in your controller. I don't care. You can reuse that logic. Yeah. You and have that place is to kind your, of bundle it up together. Yeah. Like that is your user invitation. That's your uh, blog post creation. It can wrap up all of your extra things like uh, events or whatnot, you know, it's all totally. in one spot. Yeah, kind of related to that, too. I find uh, another thing I try to do as much as possible is pass like as few pieces of data to the view as I can. Right. Mm -hmm. So not pass like seven or eight instance variables to the view that kind of get displayed in different places. Um, and a lot of the time uh, it can feel like that's impossible. But similar to the form uh, object approach, you can basically create these like view model-ish things, I guess, that kind of represent the data for that view. And it can totally just be like an object in your system. And you don't have to feel bad about making a class that represents the data that's in this view in this nicely encapsulated way. And you can ask for one of those in your controller or populate one of those and pass it to the view. And the nice thing about those too is you don't have to feel guilty about putting a bunch of presentation logic in them either, right? Because they're kind of like right. presenters for like a dashboard or like a report, something that maybe doesn't actually have like a database representation. Uh, that you can still stuff into what you need. And, you know, if it needs to generate like an error class name that goes in like a list item or something, it's fine for it to do it because like it exists solely to be represented in the view. So it gives you a nice opportunity to bundle some of that stuff up in that way too. Do you use stuff like that pretty often? Yeah, we have those everywhere. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, like formatting student information or various things like that, we need a, a quick way to access it. Um, we also handle that for things like showing a certain partial, depending on a user role. Yep. Um, so we find that pretty helpful. Or uh, if one thing, it's kind of interesting the way we handled the other one. It's view logic, but we don't send it to a view. It's just part of the API. But the the JSON transformer that's responsible for like kind of crafting the output for who gets it, that one kind of sits there and runs through. And it's like, eh, I'm going to give you this representation of like an answer or something. So I find those useful, like regardless of the output format. Um, just anything to wrap up your API in the way you want a consumer to receive it. 
Because, I mean, that's a good point in itself. Like with HTTP APIs, people are just like, I'm going to throw you my database table. And for a long time, I did the exact same thing. So I, I get the convenience of it. But a lot of times you don't want the consumer to know everything that's in there or you want them to have it in a way that they're actually going to use it. So if you're passing off like a user and their favorites to, let's say, a, a phone app, you don't want to like make them request three different things. You can send it all as one payload and it's still like it's perfectly restful. There's nothing non-restful about it. You're just packaging it up for them to have in that representation. Um, so maybe they don't need everything. Yeah, I did something uh, similar to that the other day. Actually, we had an app that we're working on that has like custom fields. So uh, someone can create custom fields and a contact can have like a value for one of these custom fields, right? It's like a CRM-ish sort of tool. And one of the things I needed to do in one of my views was I needed to get this list of custom fields back from uh, the server, but I also needed to know like what are all the potential values that everyone in the system has saved for that because I want to be able to filter by them. And even though like that doesn't really make sense as you know what the database representation of a custom field might be, it totally made sense to figure out what those were and bundle them into the JSON object that comes back when I ask for that custom field and like metadata related to that custom field. So right. yeah, I totally agree. Um, what do you guys use for custom field approaches? Like what is your storage method? Is it like an EAV or do you use something like Mongo or just a JSON yeah, store? Yeah, it's it's kind of EAV-ish, yeah. We hand-rolled it. Like we started with a package that um, didn't quite support our needs exactly, which is, you know, the way everything always goes. And instead of <laughs> right. like trying to hack around it and make it work, I decided to just rip it out and write something uh, really small that did exactly what we needed. So like there's a custom fields table, right, where a custom field gets stored with its name it's type because custom fields get represented in the view as either like short answer text, long answer text, uh, a right. group of checkbox options or a drop down. So we store like a serialized version of what the options are for that as well, which is nullable because the short answer and stuff can be nullable. And then there's just kind of like a pivot table between that table and like the contacts table that has the that person's response for that specific custom field. One thing that I thought was actually kind of cool about the the way that we ended up doing it, which is maybe like a little controversial to some people, but not really to me. Yeah, is bring that, it up. Uh, <laughs> these uh, custom fields are kind of like they're almost self-rendering in the sense that if I need to display like a form where someone can change the values of these custom fields, the only way to do that in any sort of like manageable or scalable way is that each one of these like custom field objects knows how to render itself. Otherwise you have to type check on it. You know what I mean? Right. Um, which is like the worst thing that you could ever do. And I think uh, something that happens a lot of the time that a mistake that I think people make is they're trying to like decouple things and make things not know about certain things and they end up really hurting themselves because they end up having to do stupid things like type checking to uh to get around it like oh this custom field shouldn't know how to render itself and the way that we end up doing it is like it doesn't really know how to render itself per se each one of them stores like uh the string representation of like the template name like the partial name that it needs to render to render like the form view or to render like the display view because like the multi checkbox one for example displays as like bulleted items like these are the options that the person checked off where other ones just display as like a string so it seems kind of weird that like this model like has a database representation but it also knows about the template that it needs to to render but it's like a very pragmatic decision on the basis that if i add a new type of custom field i don't have to change any of the consuming code ever because like the things related to 
um, what you do with the custom field is baked into the custom field itself. You know what I mean? That's yeah. like an approach that I've been finding, not really an approach, but like something that I've been thinking more about with object-oriented programming in general is kind of going back to some of the, the roots of it where things like objects had more, not like responsibility, but like knew how to do more things that like has become kind of like, Ooh, an object shouldn't know how to do that to itself. Like I was reading uh, one of my old college textbooks that had like a chapter on object oriented programming. And like their canonical example is that there's these shape objects and the benefit of having like a circle and a square and a triangle as separate objects is that they all had a draw method and they knew how to render themselves onto the UI. And that's Mm -hmm. what the benefit was of being able to have like a collection of these different types of shapes. You could just render them all and you didn't have to worry about what the types were. And it like, it was kind of refreshing to read something like that and think back to like, yeah, like sometimes we get a little bit too far down this path of like thinking, oh, this shouldn't be able to do this to itself. But that's not really what a method on an object means. It's more like this is something that you can do with it. And a lot of the time behavior that needs to change based on type, like the logical place to put it is in the object that is different than its sibling objects that all have to work or all have to like respond to the same message or whatever, right? Right. Um, we do a similar thing with uh, the way our items need to know where their templates are. So like we have that similar concept and there is a guy named Jim Gay in the Ruby community. He's done a lot of, um, oh, I can't think of the, I'll figure out the acronym later, but it's. Is that the DCI it, guy? Thank you. I could not think of DCI. Like it was just out of my head. I kept trying to say uh, dependency inversion. <laughs> like that's <laughs> not right. All right. So um, Jim Gay had a blog post recently where he showed like how an object could be self rendering without even containing the logic to render it. Okay. And what you said reminded me of that because each one could have a draw method and then you can pass in another object that technically knows how to do the drawing, but the object that you're using, like the rectangle, it knows I have to make uh, four lines with four corners and then, you know, it has to be equal on two sides, whatever. And then you just pass it whatever you want it to draw onto. So um, the canvas, for instance, could have methods that it knows how to use. Um, SVG could have whatever, you know, uh, OpenGL. Yeah, all so that you have like these different in. like drawing canvases that implement the same interface as far as like, how do you tell me what what you're supposed to draw? And it might be some coordinates and lines and colors and just kind of like a generic API. But like where that ends up getting drawn depends on the thing. Yeah, that's funny because that totally reminds me of like code that I used to write like in college and like my net apps that I was working on, like I actually went back and looked through some, some old college projects like uh, yesterday and I was reading through some of the code and it was like, man, like this is actually like not bad. I feel like I've almost come like full circle in some ways. Like I think the code I would write now would still be better, but I look back and I'm like, I feel like two years ago, I would have really disagreed with some of the decisions that I made in those college applications. And now I'm kind of thinking, no, I think that was like actually the right way to do that. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of funny. Yeah, no, but that's actually really cool. Is that kind of like, um, is that kind of like a visitor? Um, I mean, in some situations it could definitely be a visitor. I think in others, I would just say it's standard passing something in, like it's a collaborator object. So yeah, I mean, I guess it could go either way. That's one of those patterns that I can never remember the exact definition of. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I thought the visitor did something else extra on top of that, but I'm not entirely sure. Like, I don't have most of my patterns memorized unless I yeah, use them day to day. Totally. But uh, yeah, it's just, to me, it makes sense to pass in an object if, if you want it to work with it and use polymorphism to your advantage. Oh, like, yeah, totally. I, I love that, that stuff. That's another thing that I've been finding is made my code better. Um, it's just 
almost like as a mental gymnastics and mental exercise, like anytime I have a conditional, at least figure out like, what is the way that I can make this conditional go away if I really wanted to make it go away? And that, you know, leads to experimenting with lookup tables and using polymorphism in all sorts of interesting ways. One thing that we stumbled upon, I was trying to do this at work the other day, because we had like a same application I was working on where you can like update the uh, the status of a contact, right? So a contact can have like several different statuses. And the way you set these statuses actually do different things. It's not like you're necessarily just updating one field to match whatever the string came in as part of the, the request saying, you know, set mm-hmm. their status to active or whatever, right? It might mean like creating another record for some. It might mean updating a timestamp for others. So, you know, first naive implementation is like, you know, if that field that came in is equal to this, then do this. Otherwise, if it's this, do this. And it's just like, oh, dude, I can't, I can't live with this code. <laughs> so what can I do to like get rid of it? How can I make like these conditionals disappear? And what I ended up doing was creating like a lookup table for each one of the possible strings that comes in from um, the request. But instead of those lookup tables pointing towards like some constant because they can't, they all point to anonymous functions that represent like what should you do based on this input. And it looks like pretty gnarly, especially in PHP. Uh, And I figured Mm -hmm. some ways to clean it up, but I thought it was, I was very proud of the solution. At least I was like, this is really cool. Like this, this string comes in and I like dispatch it to the appropriate function depending on what it is without ever checking what it is. Right. It's kind of neat to be able to do stuff like that. Yeah. And I think that's a, actually a very uh functional approach like you're using higher order functions to your benefit in that one so that that's pretty good it's funny how all that stuff kind of ties back together like for certain oo languages that didn't have lambdas for a long time like like java is a good example there they got used to passing like objects in the object always had to do the work even if that function didn't really belong on that that object and now we can just send the functions around and to me it's a like it's a lightweight approach and it just um like uh, Taylor's older code. I don't remember if Laravel four and five have it, but Laravel three used to use functions to handle all the things like logging and view loading. So you would just send it your own implementation and it would take it, render it out and be done with it. So like I used to hack all that shit to make like the routes and the, um, I would use a JSON logger or something like that. Yeah. So be like, send it over here, go look up the views from this file, like all this different stuff. And it was so simple, like getting into it. So I always appreciate those. One thing I found is that um, some of those sorts of solutions, like for example, that like function lookup table solution, right? Which, which I thought was like really neat to the kind of uninitiated looks like really complex, scary mm-hmm. code. Like if you're not comfortable with the this idea of, first of all, I guess the idea of like anonymous functions in general and like, especially doing this, these lookup calls on anonymous functions and stuff, it can seem kind of like, whoa, this is way more complicated than an if statement would be. But like, once you get comfortable with it, like you really start to appreciate the fact that like, there's actually no branching here. Like it, it literally is just like, there's only one path that could, the code can possibly go in. It still depends on what the input is, but like, it's still only ever going to follow one code path, which is right. was really cool. So, And you've effectively you've taken the polymorphism that like the C level would take care of for you. If like that solution is not available to you, you took the next best option where you still have a constant time lookup from like a hash or the associative array and you call a function. 
So you've just moved it out to the PHP layer, but you still keep the same asymptotic uh, complexity. So that's yeah. pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And it's actually, it ends up looking kind of cool in PHP if you use like, you know how there's like a zillion different callable syntaxes in PHP? Like there's closures, there's arrays that take an object and then a function yeah. name. Sometimes it's just a function name. But if you use that array version where you just do like the first parameter is this and the second parameter mm -hmm. is like the string name of the function. Then it like actually is like a super short little piece of code. You can have like three different possible lookup values that point to three different calls, and it's just like four lines of code. It's pretty awesome. Right. So, is there any other like things like that that uh that you found have led you to finding more like opened your mind to creative kind of ways to solve programming problems? Kind of like this idea of like eliminating conditionals at all costs just for the purpose of like training my brain to figure out how to get rid of them. <laughs> yeah. Let's see lambdas have been the biggest eye-opener for me like using them in different ways um so before like let's say we did something the old way in php i think you actually have a screencast on this um where you do something with a for each loop you have to have kind of conditionals to work around things you have to filter out items that you don't want so like if this item has foo as a variable i don't want to record it like don't add it to the array Instead, you just take a lambda, you say reject, or um, what does PHP have? PHP, PHP has only has the uh, positive case. We have filter, okay, so which is like filter. select. So you have to do like a not, a negative condition inside a filter. Yeah. Right. So there you just say filter on this not having foo. And then you get your next list. And then you just do the next transformation and the next transformation. And that, like when I learned that in Ruby, bringing it back to PHP felt really, really good because every time. Like I had to create an EAV implementation on PH4, uh, PHP 4 way back in the day. And all that was done in like uh, for each loops and for loops, depending on whether I needed a counter or not. And it was just abysmal. And I could have cleaned up code so much better had I known about the proper use of lambdas back then. Because that was like when I was figuring out jQuery, I'm like, what the hell is a closure? And like everything was like, oh, this is amazing. I used closures everywhere and got myself in a lot of trouble. But yeah, I mean, that, that has definitely been eye opening for me too. just like training my brain to think about taking some piece of data and transforming it into some other piece of data based on some series of steps and trying to figure out, well, what would be the how could I get it to like where it's one step easier to get it to the final result and just like doing that as like a compositional chain like i'm forcing myself to find ways to use that in everything all the time like i was working on i have a little project that i've been working on, on the side that's like a. have you ever used hound uh yeah with ruby or sass or stuff so i built like hound but for php and psr2 because they'll never ever support php right because it doesn't exist to people who aren't php programmers <laughs> like <laughs> so i built like a thing that does the same thing and um I was like pretty amazed that by the time I had done like the core of the application, like forgetting kind of the UI layer, everything that was able to like listen for a pull request to change, come in, uh, figure out what the style guide violations were, map those into like GitHub comments and post those to GitHub. Like that was like a decent chunk of code to get all that working and handle all the different scenarios. But there was like three conditionals in the whole code base. Like I audited it and that's all because of array filter pretty much, right? Like being able to think about things in terms of a collection and instead of like trying to do in one big step, like, okay, loop over it. If it doesn't contain this, then don't add it to the result field or whatever. You know how you always have that stupid variable called result that starts as an array before you know yes. how to do all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd be checking this, you know, don't add it to result if this, do add it to this. And you try and do all these steps in one big loop and it just becomes this mess. But if you can think about it in terms of, okay, well, I have these, so in the terms of of this application right it's like 
I sniff the file for all the style guide violations. I have this set of style guide violations now, but some of them I don't want to comment on because they're not on pieces of the code that changed because I have to sniff the whole file even if the diff only contained like three lines. Mm -hmm. So I filter out any of the violations that are on lines that didn't change. Then I map those violations into you know these comment objects and then those comment objects uh, get posted to the GitHub API. And that's like the conceptual flow of the whole thing. And you don't have to have an if statement anywhere, even though like there's conditional logic, really, you know what I mean? So it's pretty cool. That sounds like a fun project. Yeah, like it, was, through all those different it was things. pretty fun, actually. Um, there's some l- interesting things that I learned that I didn't expect to learn, like understanding like the diff file format syntax and like what the numbers mm-hmm. at the top of a diff mean and how to parse that and figure out what lines the changes are actually on in the real file and stuff. So there's some some cool little things in there like that for sure. You know who Michael Feathers is? Yes. The guy who wrote uh, Working Effectively with Legacy Code? I haven't actually yep. read that book, but I've heard lots of good things about it. So the other day I decided to like kind of deep dive into his stuff and just read what he's all about, right? Mm-hmm. And I stumbled across his blog and he's been talking a lot about this compositional chain stuff that we're talking about and how he's like trying to figure out taking it to its like logical extremes and trying to solve every possible problem he can uh, using these compositional chains. And um, he had this really cool blog post that I'll put in the show notes about generating guitar tab. So you, do you play guitar or bass or anything? Yeah, guitar. Yeah, yeah. So you know how to read guitar tab. I'm assuming mm-hmm. like every guitar player in the world does. <laughs> right. So he's talking about how like, you know, guitar tab is actually a pain in the ass to actually write out by hand. Cause you have to like, you know, dash, 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 put in the number. And like, it's actually like quite annoying to type out. And he was thinking, well, wouldn't it be cool if I could type guitar tab by instead just having like a big long file where each line just contained a string number, a space, and then the fret number that I wanted to play on that string. Mm-hmm. And it was just a big long file full of these things. And somehow I want to turn that into guitar tab at the end of the day. So he wrote like this like six line Ruby script that is all using these compositional chains to take that file and transform it into guitar tab. And it was it was really, really cool the solution that he came up with using things like transpose, right? Like where you can kind mm-hmm. of like invert the way that the array works. And it was it was really clever. So I'll definitely have to link to that. It was really cool. Ruby has a nice library for array and enumerable manipulations. Like it's it's a lot richer than what's in PHP right now. It's like super good. And it's nothing that PHP can't have. It's just like the, the standard library doesn't have them right now. So like think uh, Taylor's augmented it a little bit in, in his stuff, like for array gets and different things like that. Yeah. I think that's like the thing that I uh, wish we had the most in PHP is like n- these native array objects where I could call methods on an array. Cause I can't imagine ever working on a PHP project where I didn't have some sort of collection object to encapsulate like every array that I ever work with ever, because I never want to have to have these like inside out array function calls where if I have to filter something, then reduce it and then map it. I want to write it in that order. I don't want it to be like filter on the inside, then, you know, map at the next level out and then reduce on the next level out from that. It just reads so poorly. So I can't imagine like not having that. And it's when you see some of the solutions, especially in Ruby, where you can use like um, symbols to represent like uh, method calls and stuff, mm-hmm. you have these like one liners that are like less than 80 characters long that might do five transformations. And it's looks totally awesome. You know, right. Symbol to proc is like my favorite thing that exists. Um, and it's actually faster at the compiler level. So is if you can use it, you use it. Is that when you put like the ampersand in front of the symbol? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it just tells the Ruby interpreter to process that as a proc. So when the symbol gets passed through, it'll transform it, makes a, a little bytecode level block out of it, and then runs it. That's awesome. So it's pretty neat. 
Um, have you used, do you use JavaScript a lot or you normally not in the front end? Yeah, I do work in the front end like a decent amount, but I definitely don't take it as seriously as I do the back end stuff and right. to, my, to um, my own fault for sure. Well, <laughs> do you know what underscore is? Yeah, that's that, like a library that gives you all the like partial apply stuff and all the cool functional stuff, right? And like your each and your map and everything. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty much how we did um, any sort of collection-based manipulation for a long time, um, up until like ECMAScript five became commonplace, and you could use things like for each and map. Um, and still today, underscore is faster than the native implementations because it uses uh, for loops under the hood. So as funny as that is. That's where a lot of that stuff works, and it feels like Laravel's collections in the way that you have to start the chain by creating a collection, and then you would effectively process it down through each transformation. So map, filter, reduce, group by, whatever. And then when you get to the end, you have to call value to get the value out of it. Mm -hmm. So you have to unwrap the collection, and that's what you have to do in PHP um, if you want the native array Array itself. Yeah, and you have to do that so many times because people type hint array and no matter what interfaces you implement on an object it will never satisfy an array type hint in bhp right and so. sometimes it's an array sometimes it's a hash like yeah. which, which one do you want <laughs> at the time <laughs> so does underscore work the same way where like after you because i know like you do like underscore dot map or whatever right mm-hmm. and the return from that you can chain off of so by default underscore does not do that by default, underscore expects whatever you to uh, use, like underscore dot map. It'll give you the array, but you can't chain it. Okay. So to start a chain, you do underscore dot chain, and then everything will get wrapped back up in an underscore collection from there on out. Awesome. So where you would start it, like you do new collection dot select dot, or uh, I guess arrow in PHP. Yeah. You would do underscore dot chain dot map dot reduce dot value and then you'll get your array back up at the end yeah underscore does some other stuff that i remember like i think i'd probably be able to grok it easier now but i remember working on some projects like that we inherited a previous job where someone had like was really into some of the stuff that you could do with underscore (laughs) like some of the like partial application where you could like like I guess it's like function currying sort of thing where you can like mm-hmm. take a function and you can like wrap that in another function that's going to pre-fill one of the parameters to the function it wraps and like these things would just kept getting built up and passed around everywhere and I haven't really figured out like how that makes my code simpler yet and I I know I trust that it does but that's something that I think would be I'd be interested in exploring more and figuring out like that might be another one of those like um compositional chain like light bulbs that goes off for me so that's something i definitely want to dive into a little bit more um it it definitely helps in the chain if you have something like um like a function that expects an argument in a certain location but you don't yet have that argument so you wrap that up in a function that you can eventually get the argument from then you call it at that time and i wasn't great with currying or partial application or anything um, but i started reading the maybe haskell book from one of the thoughtbot guys and then I like with Elm, I found the reason to have all this stuff. So there's one method it's called, uh, it's on the Lisp type or I'm sorry, list type, which is effectively like an array. You can do list.member and then you check to see if a type is inside of that list. So you can say like, is one part of this list and it'll return true. Most of the other things wanted those, uh, arguments flip-flopped. So there is an argument called, or there's a method called flip as part of the standard library where it'll just change the arguments around. It just wraps it in a closure and flips it for you or wraps it, uh, whatever they call them. It just wraps it in a, a function. Yeah. So you can then 
attach that to your chain. So then that now becomes part of your pipeline without having to write some weird syntax. You just, it naturally does it. Plus technically the way, I don't know if it's all ML languages or if it's only Haskell and Elm, but all of the functions are partially applied. Like it, it's native currying. So technically each function accepts one argument, but it's just special syntax that allows you to have like three. It just keeps wrapping up what you need. Uh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, I don't fully understand how they pulled that off, but <laughs> it works pretty well. That's awesome. Yeah, so we've been going for quite a while now, so maybe it'd be a good time to start wrapping up. Is there anything else that you want to chat about before we go? No, I don't have any other topics right now, so I think we're good. Okay, well, awesome, man. Well, uh, yeah, uh, what's the best way for people to kind of chat with you about some of this stuff or uh, hear about more with your explorations in Elm and stuff? Um, my Twitter is usually the easiest way to see what I'm doing. Um, interspersed in my random tech ranting will be probably musical choices and comments about me dancing as most of today was. <laughs> if you want to take a look at any of the information, if I get a chance to record it, I will. Um, our next user group meeting is September 17th. So I don't know if this episode will come out before or after, but I'll try to get a recording of the, uh, the Elm presentation. It's not going to be great because I'm not great at Elm yet, but you know, maybe somebody can at least learn enough. Um, if you want to learn Elm, I really recommend the Pragmatic Studios Elm course. Um, I found that to be a blast. And if you're anywhere in the Erie, Pennsylvania area on the 17th, our meetup is going to be taking place at the Radius co-working space. So um, feel free to stop by and, you know, we love new members. So hopefully we'll have some food and we can hang out and have a good time. Awesome. Well, uh, yeah, it's been awesome having you on the show. As always, it's fun to catch up with you. I know we, we don't really chat too often outside of these uh podcast episode so it's it's always fun to chat with you and talk about some of the stuff that we've been working on over the last couple months in between <laughs> yeah definitely yeah, maybe we can get a, a slack channel again now that irc's kind of faded out right on man well uh if you if anyone wants to check out show notes for this episode where there'll probably be some cool links to some cool functional programming stuff and things like that then uh i think it'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 25 i switched the uh, hosting for full stack radio now so the urls have changed slightly but the old ones still work thanks to simplecast who were kind enough to set up the redirects for me when i switched the hosting over to them so props to those guys if you run a podcast and you're hosting it on like libsyn or something you should switch to simplecast they're the best <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to check out the show notes they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 25 uh thanks to laracasts for sponsoring the podcast if you want to learn more about laravel or php or any web application development stuff in general check out laracast.com i've been a subscriber since day one and i find cool new stuff to learn there pretty much every week so there's something there for everybody so definitely check it out uh thanks everyone see you next time